Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 107, the one about you 2 at the Las Vegas Sphere, Lego Insiders, and the film Jurassic Park. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And my co-host, as always, all the way from La France, is a digital marketing veteran. He is a speaker, trainer, and advisor with nearly three decades of experience. He enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build better online campaigns faster. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Finto. Well, thank you very much for a wonderful introduction. And you've just heard from my co-host, a marketing speaker and consultant, spent his whole career helping his customers keep their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans and the creator of the Roger video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, Pascal, it's great to be back. It's great to be back. This is episode 107. We are rattling through the early hundreds. And what a show we have got for you today. We've got lots of tech to talk about. We've got some great content content and this week pascal you have chosen the film we're going to talk about just give us a sneaky peek a sneaky preview of what we're going to be talking about later in film marketing oh so if it's a sneaky peek well let, let's just say that the man who invented the summer blockbuster in 1975 did it again in 1993 with Jurassic Park. Yeah, so lots of teeth in this one as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> we'll talk about the teeth later on, but we've got a lot to get through before we get to film marketing. So let's start, as we always do, with In the News. We begin with only 13% of Gen X consumers, those born between the years of 1965 and 1981, say that they feel underrepresented in the social advertising they see. Just 22% of CMOs say their partnership with the CFO is truly collaborative, according to a new research from the CMO Council and KPMG. Just over a quarter, i.e. 26% of the marketing leaders surveyed, describe the relationship they have with finance as indifferent, while 7% say it's outright hesitant. And I apologise for all the acronyms in that news item. 76% of consumers prefer to see diversity of body types in advertising, but it does not impact their shopping decisions, according to research by Glammy, a European fashion platform. UK consumers are predicted to be £3 billion worse off this Christmas compared to last year, according to research from Ship Engine and Retail Economics, as the cost of living crisis continues to impact people's spending power. Nearly half of podcast listeners, that's 42%, are skipping ads and finding them intrusive, according to a survey by YouGov. This is up from 36% who said ads were intrusive and skipped them in 2019. E-Consultancy's Future of Marketing survey found that 32% of marketers say their organisation is already using generative AI tools and 43% are actively considering doing so. Over the next two years, 76% of marketers predict a small increase in marketing budgets or that budget will stay the same. The top investment priorities are data and insight capability, technology and infrastructure, and strategic initiatives. And Greg's has posted its quarter three trading update, delivering positive results off the back of a loyalty-focused approach to customer retention. Participation in the loyalty scheme through Greg's app continues to grow with 13.1% of in-store transactions now scanned in the app. Oh, gotta love a Greg's 
a sausage roll or a Greg's steak bake. What do you think, Pascal? Yes, I was introduced uh, to, you know, the delight of a Greg's kind of, uh, you know, cave of dreams as you, you walk into, into the stores. And I have to say that the bacon Stanley's is still top of the list for me um, because I'm very continental. When I first arrived <laughs> in Newcastle upon time, I used to have a bacon Stanley with a hot chocolate, much to my wife's horror. But, um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, Greg's, and they've been mentioned many a time in the news and, and the, in, in the, um, you know, content spotlight. They just have a way to engage with with their audiences, but they've got you know the, the four seven Ps just spot on every single time. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I sort of never think of them as a fast food outlet, but I guess they're mm. there up with McDonald's and Burger King and and KFC and all of those sorts of brands, really. But it, it's almost like a a UK institution, Greg's, isn't it? But what's <laughs> really fascinating about this is how they've really boosted customer retention and loyalty by introducing an app because let's face it you don't really associate a, a shop like greg's with cutting edge tech do you you think well they've just got great big ovens and and um culinary equipment in the background that's the tech that they favor but here's a brand which is actually doing cutting edge technology with its marketing and it's working and you know, we, we've said this before, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Everybody's trying to um, save a bit of money. And here we have a brand that's actually growing. Mm, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, they, they just, they, they always seem to catch, you know, the, the right moment. We, we spoke, for example, about some of the, the, the PR stunts around Christmas. Um, we spoke about, you know, how they, they've engaged differently. And to me, it's just, you know, they've observed behavior when it comes to mobile phone usage. They've seen the evolution of uh, cameras and the ability to scan and and the friction being removed, you know, by apps um, across, you know, either Android systems and, and iPhones. And they just went for it. And I'm sure that they were still open to the idea that this would may not work or would have a, a kind of lackluster reaction. But I think it, you begin by having already a loyal following and you add to that experience. So let's go back a little bit and talk about Generation X. Now, I think, Pascal, both you and I are Generation X. Um, so this applies to us. So the survey says that only 13% of Gen X consumers say that they feel represented by the adverts that they see. Do you, do you associate with that? Yes, but what I will say is that I don't find the advertising on social media uh, particularly well executed. You know, it, it doesn't even come close to comparing to the quality of storytelling you get on TV, um, even online. You know, on platforms and so on. So I think f f for me, it's back to people are just too much focused on social media. It would seems to me anyway on you know that kind of features angle as opposed to sometimes benefits, and then of course putting the audience. Right, right in the um, in, in in the middle of it. So, I, I would say uh, the vast, vast majority of social media advertising leave me just completely uh, unfazed because it's just not interesting whatsoever. And yeah. then I don't that the find that there is the complete absence of, of the audience um, element. Of course, we're going to feel underrepresented. And I must, you know, remind everybody out there that Gen X and Confession Time, I never remember properly the different, you know, decades and years between XYZ and, and boomers and so on. But I would say that the this group, Gen X, we are still the most active in a meaningful way on the internet. And we still have the most disposable income, I would say, you know. 
Absolutely. And I think that marketers forget this. You know, this it's the, the cult of youth, isn't it? Let's focus on Gen Z and Gen Z and millennials. And yeah, boomers are vilified. We always, the, for some reason, the boomer generation always gets slagged off by by everybody. But as you say, yeah, Gen X, us, we're, we're completely um, sort of forgotten about. We maybe don't shout loud enough, Pascal, um, but I'm the same. I, a lot of the ads that I get served on YouTube and on social media they just they're just not relevant to me at all so that they've got their targeting completely wrong and let's face it when we start talking about marketing strategy you've got to get your targeting right you've got to identify your customers and do something that is going to want that customer to buy your product or or buy your service and if you're completely mismatching that then we're not going to be interested we are going to feel underrepresented so Mm. Big lesson here. Don't forget us Gen Xers, us children who grew up in the 1980s. Now, the last one I wanted to talk about today is uh, quite a lot of stats today in the news. Um, this one about CMOs and their partnerships with CFOs. And I did say apologies for all the acronyms. Chief Marketing Officers and their partnerships with Chief Financial Officers. Now, I can remember when I used to work in big corporate and I was marketing director, I had a really, really difficult relationship with the CFO, the head of finance. And the reason was, is that he thought that marketing was the fluffy department. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things that we've said that companies say about marketing, the coloring in department, the fluffy department, the, you know, that all we're interested in is building pretty pictures or create creatives and things like that. And the way I tried to solve that problem was to focus in on this is the result that we're going to try and achieve with this campaign or with this advertising or with this product or whatever it was. And as soon as you start talking in the language of finance, then these people do start to warm up to you a bit and see that marketing is not just about silly pictures and fluffy and fluffiness and all of that sort of thing. But what I would say is that it's it's a two-way street and yes as marketers we do need to give them more financial information but i think they could also try and see it from the other side and try and understand just as we should understand the finances i think that they should also invest a bit of time try and understand the creative side of things too yeah i'm, I'm disappointed by this stats as, as you can imagine because i'm thinking so does it mean based on my own experience you know um, starting my career in the 90s and nothing much has moved on ah, I, i'm it's just very disappointing i'm also going to say that there is something in there by the ceo and all the senior managers you know around the boardroom table to to support you know the key messages shared by the chief marketing officers and and kind of you know educate themselves, but also if it is obvious as you sit through those board meetings and you know I've, I've done our fair share, and you can tell that it's not working. You know there isn't essentially an understanding or common grounds between marketing and sales and finance. Then I think the CEO should take the lead and the others to you know sort this out because it's only going to um, hinder progress. One or the other is going to also, which is what we know is the case in our profession people's going to leave and yeah. think, well you know there's only so much so many times i can head my, my head against the brick wall i move on to uh, an organization where the culture just more in line with what i want to do with my own time yeah absolutely absolutely so again we've got to give the finance people 
results. We've got to show them where the money will come from. But I do say it's a two-way street. So lots of good stuff in there today, Pascal, and lots of stats. I hadn't realized when I put together all of those news items that it was a bit <laughs> stat-heavy this week. But uh, interesting, though, to see. I think people are just focusing on data a lot more at the moment. I think your point about you know that the, there's obviously the, it's almost like a, a rug being pulled on on both sides. The consumers are, are really, really being careful now. They have to. Um, there's no, as far as I can see, really, there's no kind of uh, short-term uh, benefits yet coming down the horizon. People are thinking, well, would it get better in spring of next year? We don't know. We don't have the data. And then conversely, you've got the businesses who still need to exist and operate uh, and do so in a, in a way that is obviously eventually, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, able to do so covering mm. costs as well as the salaries and everything else so to me um you know i i, I heard obviously through the news that the uk government is sitting down and they're doing the same in france with big uh, sectors saying what can we do because if you get to the point where consumers are so reluctant to spend money that they literally don't do that you know i can imagine back to what you were saying people are going to say do you know what everyone this christmas we're going to tighten the belt and mm -hmm. we're just going to do something much simpler that the impact on retailers and more i mean i can imagine you know what, what is the name again of the big shopping center you have near uh, in edinburgh Oh, we have we have several. We have the mm. Guile Centre. We have the um, the St James Quarter. <laughs> That's quite a few. Yeah, so we have you not know, Eldon Square in in Newcastle, Metro Centre, and so on. You can just imagine, sadly, around the Christmas period for the for the 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 island, the corridors, and the store store themselves to be quite quite light in. The, in a kind of um, you know people coming going to buy something indeed okay pascal great mm. news items there shall we move on now to one of my favorite parts of the show um let's talk about something specific piece of content it's time for content spotlights <music> In this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table an item of content. It could be a podcast, it could be an article, it could be a video. Pascal, what have you got for us this week? So I've got an article this week, and interestingly, um, it's almost like a follow-up to you know your uh, news item on Greg's and loyalty, because there was an article written by Jason Ayton, who's a tech columnist at Inc.com. We've had the opportunity to mention him a few times, but it was a title about loyalty that really grabbed my attention. So here it is. After 91 years, Lego rolled out something its most loyal fans can appreciate. It's a stroke of genius. Now, I'm thinking, okay, Lego as a brand, in terms of marketing lessons, we like a lot, you and I, but it's about the loyal fans. And I'm thinking, well, it's interesting because in some circles, people are saying Lego doesn't have to do a great deal of effort. People love the product. Uh, interestingly, I was visiting my, my sister in Bordeaux recently, and I saw my nephews playing with Lego, and some of the Lego bricks were mine from when I was a child. It's just <laughs> absolutely you know, riveting to see that. It's delightful. Um, but the article, Jake, was around the launch or the relaunch of the Lego VIP loyalty program, a reward scheme. And there was two major changes that Jason wanted us to pay attention to as, as a lesson to take away, but also within the context of what he's saying is, lately, these aren't Jason's words, it seems as though a lot of companies are making their loyalty programs a little less rewarding. 
And no wishing to invite you for another rant, but the airline industry is mentioned in that article as well about the way in which you know people are saying, well, let's cut a few things off the loyalty program. Let's get something back as opposed to actually being rewarding. So number one change for the Lego VIP reward scheme, they've changed the name to Lego Insiders. Oh. Now, it may be like well so you had a few change of word big deal but actually the power of word the power of actually you know, making somebody feel part of something exclusive is very very uh, important and for me the lesson i'm going to go straight into it into if you don't mind roger it's this idea of everyone you know today look at what you're doing with the social media email marketing loyalty programs you may have one whatever you're doing and think about the naming and is it time for uh, uh, rethink because you know language uh, moves on with time? But also, is it achieving what you want it to be, which is to feel very, very special? And you could argue Lego VIP was indeed that you know that very important. But Lego insiders and what Jason's saying is that it changes everything from the emotional element reaction to the, to the term, but also how it feels to be part of that program. Very cleverly as well in terms of Lego insiders, it matches also. A consolidation of all the different websites. So I'm not obviously part of the Lego VIP scheme, but they seem to have had many websites dotted around where you could do different things. Like they had the Lego IDs website, they had the Lego Live website, they had so many websites. So now Lego Insiders is one central portal. But the other thing they've done, which is also very, very important. So one of the um, big, big advantage of being part of the what used to be called Lego VIP now Lego Insiders is that when you bought a um, box of lego bricks you could scan the qr code and eventually um all those points allowed you to take it to the store or online to buy uh, more bricks at the discounted um things and what they've lego have said is listen no matter when you join lego insiders you can go as far back in time as you want and scan things you've bought before you became a member so the QR code was in, were introduced in 2019. Um, they exist on boxes. They exist on manual, instruction manual. They exist everywhere. And literally, if you join today, 2023, you could, if you've kept the boxes and then did gather around with your friends, family, and neighbors, you could scan the codes and it will count. There is no uh, kind of conditions to becoming part of the Lego Insiders. And Jason's saying that is a stroke of genius. No friction, no conditions, no ifs and buts which uh, you and I have seen before. I can tell you the story in a moment about when I went to an uh, outdoor uh, shop and the conditions before I could even benefit from anything. So in conclusion, and I would even like people to read the article and, and find out a bit more about Lego Insiders, Jason says that simple is almost always better. Yes. It's a simple change of words and the simple kind of, let's not put barriers to entry. Let, let people scan the QR code. A rewards program should feel, and that's the term feel, not be, feel rewarding. And as marketers and those in charge of customer experience, your most important job is to know your best customers. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, Pascal. I don't really know where to start. I mean, you're absolutely right. So many loyalty schemes are being paired back now. You know, you mentioned airlines. British Airways have devalued their Avios points so many times now and made it more expensive to travel. So, you know, it, a lot of that 
loyalty schemes it seems quite worthless and we know that our super supermarket schemes like tesco are being devalued as well so isn't it refreshing to see a, a company like this actually pushing it the other way and, and and expanding it um you know again yes we are living in a in difficult times cost wise and this that and the other but shouldn't you be trying to delight your customers at the moment rather than annoy them i mean this morning i got i got an uh, an insurance renewal for my home contents insurance um from um uh, quote me happy and they want me to pay an extra 15 pounds a month because i i haven't moved house i haven't painted the house in gold paint and i haven't bought trisha a load of diamond necklaces and they want 15 pounds a month more on top of what we were already paying so quote me happy is quote me very very unhappy and there are so many brands these days seemingly either devaluing loyalty schemes or increasing the prices sneakily and ultimately it just turns customers off stop doing it lego is a great brand though i mean they they've always try hard there's a lego shop in the, the aforementioned st james's center which we were talking about before and and there's this lego set of the titanic and it must have about 70 million mm. pieces in it and and literally each of the cabins is there made out of lego inside and you can take the top off and look inside at the engines and stuff like this it's absolutely remarkable i've never really had the patience for lego but andrew <laughs> my son has, has always been really um into it so absolute thumbs up to to lego for doing this pascal and back to these were very simple, easy decision to make. Yeah. The the other way would have been causing friction and disappointment, saying, No, 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 I'm sorry, you can't scan your QR code on um, you know, after, you know, for anything you've bought before you join the program. It's just it would have been a PR disaster. But I don't think that was a motivation. They just generally want to be generous and feel that's the right thing to do for for, for their customers. And very, very briefly, uh, with the outdoor companies, I was buying a new set of kit. I had everything, you know, Roger, the shoes, the, the, the jacket, everything. And everywhere around the store, there was the promotion for the loyalty scheme. So I went then to the to the cashier. I said, can, "Can I join the loyalty scheme?" And then my parents said, "No, you have to buy something before you can join the scheme." <laughs> and uh, I keep it very short. But anyway, um, went ahead, bought the stuff. I was already disappointed. And then days later, I received an email with discount vouchers about things I already bought. Oh, goodness so, sake! You know, yeah, not good, not good. <laughs> What about your selection there for the content spotlights, Roger? Okay, well, as you know, Pascal, I'm a big music fan, and sometimes <laughs> I do bring to the table music-orientated content spotlights. And this one really caught my attention. It's just absolutely unbelievable now las vegas i have to say is not the sort of place that i actually fancy going to it's i've always thought it just looks a bit artificial a bit sort of tacky and a bit sort of mm. plasticky however one of the things that everybody recognizes about las vegas in addition to obviously all the gambling and, and all the um, casinos is that they often have these musical residences and i think obviously one of the most famous musical residences in las vegas was elvis presley and and effectively a musical res residence is that they will play in a venue in one of the big hotels or in one of the concert halls pretty much every night for a specific period of time and that period of time could be a couple of weeks it could be a couple of months or in elvis's case it was even longer than that and huge bands and and big star names that you know you would know shania twain and all of that sort of thing have played residences in 
Las Vegas. Now, earlier in the year, I remember seeing a news article and almost dismissing it that you too were going to be doing this residency in Las Vegas. Now, obviously, you two have been around for a long time. I think their first album was released in the early 80s. I think it was 1980, actually, that Boy came out. And of course, you two famously um, came second to Queen at Live Aid in 1985 by um, playing an absolutely storming um, mini set where the lead singer dived down into the audience to rescue some girls out of the audience who were being, and, it, and it's just gone in, it's just gone history, historical. And you two are probably one of the biggest bands in the world still, and they are renowned for their stage shows and all the bright lights and the video effects and this, that, and the other. And the, the thing that knitted it together was when more information started to come out about this residency was that it was going to be featured in this new building in Las Vegas, which is called The Sphere. And I picked up this video, which I've put the link to in the show notes here, of the first night of this residency. So you two play in a concert, two-hour concert, and in this venue. Now, You've got to actually watch this video to truly see what I'm about to try and describe. But imagine a completely perfect sphere with seats for 18,000 people inside. And every part of the surface of that sphere is a screen. So you can literally have... It's not even 360 degrees, is it? It's almost like an infinity wrapping around you in every direction screens and therefore they've got the ability to make you feel as if you're outside and quite honestly even on the you on, on the youtube screen which notoriously tends to to dampen the view of things this just looks absolutely and utterly incredible and the outside of the sphere is also made of screens as well so even people driving past will be able to see all sorts of things going on and the show is just Astonishing, absolutely astonishing. Once you get past the fact that here's a band that's been around for 40 years and they can still belt out their hits and they can still sound pretty good and Bono's voice isn't the same as it was in 1985, but he's not lost his voice as much as some singers has, but it's the, the technology, Pascal, the spectacle. It's just astonishing. It, it's You watch this and you think, is this, is this actually real? Is this genuinely actually real? Um, whoever thought of it and whoever put it together it really is is going to be recognized as one of the the visual experience marvels of the current age i would think once it beds in now they do have a few technical glitches which is also quite interesting as well and i love the way they recover from those technical glitches but have a look at this video Honestly, just have a look at the video. Skip forward to the song that's called Where the Streets Have No Name and just watch that. It's absolutely incredible. And just as a footnote, apparently they're going to build one of these things, an exact replica of the sphere from Las Vegas. They're going to build one in London. Wow. Do you know, it's always a, a joyous moment to listen to you talking about music-related <laughs> you know, information because your passion comes through. But as I was thinking about it, you know, it is true that in the world of business, if you want to take it back to that and consumer, 
we inherit, you know, what people do either in the world of science, as mm-hmm. mentioned in other segments, or in the world of entertainment. I mean, look at the impact of film on marketing and yeah. now because I'm thinking, therefore, your prediction, perhaps, no wishing to put words in your mouth, is in a business context, in a future conference in London, let's say Las Vegas, people will be invited to talk about, I don't know, let's say for um obvious reason, the future of AI in the sphere. And be given that experience. Um, I mean, for you and I, as public speakers, that would be just quite stunning. That mm-hmm. not only do we prepare, obviously, the the, the key messages, but we'll be working with the AV uh, team to come up with the, the visual experience to accompany uh, our words. Uh, and and it shows there's always some, something new that you can do, because ultimately, I'm sure you two will have been, and for the audience and the fans. I would watch YouTube with nothing, you know, just them on stage. But then we have this fear and this an industry that keeps challenging itself and moving forward. And yeah, thank you for sharing that with all of us. And for me, I know what I'm doing tomorrow afternoon, be watching that concert. <laughs> <laughs> probably it's probably worth having a look at one now from a few days in once they've ironed out all the bugs, unless you actually want to see the version that has the bugs. Maybe that's a little bit more entertaining. Okay, Pascal, I got really excited there. So I think it's about time we slowed things down a little bit and headed back into time. So we're going to set the controls of the TARDIS. We're going to fire up the flux capacitor and it's time for This Week in History. And in 1958, the newly formed National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, launches its first spacecraft, Pioneer 1. Originally intended to fly to the moon, it fell back to the Earth after a 43-hour flight. In 1975, Bruce Springsteen scores his first pop hit with Born to Run. And you know what? In 2023, he's still playing three-hour concerts live. Probably soon in the sphere in Las Vegas. Oh, that would be amazing, <laughs> wouldn't it? In 1999, NVIDIA made its presence known in the video and can market with the release of the GeForce 256 GPU graphics processing unit. It is considered to be the first GPU in the world and provided full support for the infamous DirectX 7. It also featured a whopping 32 megabytes of double data rate memory. My goodness, in 2003 Kill Bill Volume 1 directed by Quentin Tarantino and starring Uma Thurman as The Bride is released in 3,102 US theatres and grossed $22 million on its opening weekend. Are you a Kill Bill fan Pascal? Oh absolutely I mean that was a movie we just couldn't wait to go and see you know the the kind of convergence of literally the Tarantino kind of crazy mind and Japanese uh, cinema. And it, it was a delight. And, um, you know, we went to see it several times, I reckon, back th- back in the days. Should it have been made as one film rather than volume one and volume two, do you think? Or released mm, as two? Sorry. Yeah, that's what you mean. As in not having to wait so long for volume, volume two. Probably because I would say that, yeah, I, I, I remember my feelings of volume two because you had to wait quite a bit. I didn't, you didn't feel like as engaged from you know, Yeah, it's very interesting. The NVIDIA graphics cards are actually quite notorious now. I might get this wrong, but in NVIDIA have made a lot of money out of the blockchain NFT debacle haven't they because we all know that for whatever bizarre reason um, mining or minting or whatever the terminology is mining and minting an nft is hugely 
um, processor heavy, isn't it, on a computer? And NVIDIA have effectively had to um, up their production of graphics cards in order to allow all these people to mine these NFTs, which is an aside. There's also an article going around at the moment that says that most of them are now worthless and that actually uh, justifies some of the criticisms that we threw at NFTs here on this show. I think we, it actually turned out that we were right and that they were worthless all along. But what do you think about this whole NVIDIA um, little bit of a secret about AI and that sort of thing? I think, unfortunately, so to begin with, this is an important technical historical event because without their effort in creating that graphics card and linking it to Direct um, X7, which is for everyone, what we needed all of us to use our computers to see uh, 3D animations, um, videos, uh, playing games, and so on. So without you know their contribution, wouldn't be where we are with regard to online communication and, and video streaming and that kind of thing. So historically, it's it's a very, very important one. But I'm always nervous when a brand, such uh, as NVIDIA, deviate from its core purpose and start to, I don't know, do some experiments with you know AI and with um, the NFTs and that kind of things. Because I'm thinking, uh, I suppose you have the resources and the time to waste time on projects that lead nowhere. And maybe at least you learn some lessons. But I, I'm always uh, happier, let's say, that when someone stick to their core offering and just yeah. improve that as opposed to having some side projects. Absolutely. There we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I'm not going to go off on another musical rant about Bruce Springsteen. Suffice to say that I find it astonishing that you two are still around when their big break came around 1985. But here's a guy who's been going for 10 years longer. Absolutely incredible. Tell me about the NASA space oh, spacecraft. Right. <laughs> so uh, again, historical event, and this is there's a lesson in there. So to begin with, uh, there was a Pioneer Zero. Let's say there was a beta test a of beta sending test, essentially yeah. a, a probe, a probe that wasn't. Big. They were heavy, but they're not, they're not very big. And it was just this idea of, can we get into outer space? And just to give us a goal, can we go around the wind and back um, to see whether or not we can actually send um, spacecraft and then we, we can have you know bigger ambitions? So Pioneer 1, as mentioned, failed. I mean, literally, um, it, we went up in the air. It didn't actually go very far. And after 43 hours, it um, crashed on the Earth. Pioneer 2 failed. Mm. Pioneer 3 failed. Four, five, literally, you had to wait till, if my numbers uh, calculation are correct, Pioneer nine <laughs> for a mission to to have been successful, which was to literally go to the moon, take a few pictures, and, and, and back again. And that took you to, you know, the, the, the mid 60s. And to me, that there's a lesson in there around, wow, don't give up too early. Because, you know, if they'd given up after Pioneer one, two, or three, or four, five, six, seven, there would be no space exploration. There would be no SpaceX, I, I'm guessing, although people could have tried a bit later. And I suppose it's back to when you do something brand new, there's going to be problems. And you have to have a senior team. You need to have people like CFOs who are happy for you to experiment with something whereby at least, you know, no, no harm done, no, nobody got hurt because they were not manned anyway, um, mined spacecraft. Um, but for me, it's about this idea of not giving up too early 
because the, the reward obviously it, it came through and in the 69 as, uh, as we know we landed on on the moon eventually and uh, Artemis now is coming through we've had Pakistan obviously and, and and China so for me pioneer is is there's almost a nostalgia and of course you know pioneer 10 11 uh, are now into literally outer space I mean they're beyond reach and they're no longer sending data and I'm mean, such a romantic because I feel sorry for these poor probes <laughs> who just into in outer space uh, like Viking and all the others and um, to the point where they're no longer a function yeah i mean it, it boggles the mind to think about how far away they are but it also demonstrates the tenacity that you need mm. to get something to effectively work eventually and you know you're not going to succeed the first time and that comes not only with spacecraft it can come with a website it could come with a podcast it could come with a piece of content you're going to have to keep iterating it until you get the one that actually works some fascinating stuff there in history pascal and again it just reinforces the debt that we owe to all of these pioneers from the past that allow us to live in the world that we live in today let's bring things up to date let's talk about some marketing tech and apps okay pascal what technological wonders have you got for us this week so this week, it's about, oddly, website. You mentioned it a moment ago in our previous segments. And we've got some news. So recently in the UK, there was a big, big event around SEO called Brighton SEO. And one of their special guests was actually the man in charge of uh, relations, you know, um, Google search relations is his title called John Muller. And he was giving some some advice, some, some kind of uh, hints and tips about what the search engine Google is concerned about in terms of uh, scanning, ranking, and displaying search results and, and for us web pages. And it was interesting where they feel like as a search engine, they made their way through finding out about content that was useful, finding out about websites that were um, fast to load, and so on and so forth. And it would seem as though at this moment in time, the focus for Google to give your website a chance to be ranked well is accessibility. It's almost like this is the last thing they want to to get right or asking us to get right because they are making good inroads when it comes to accessibility with their own platforms, particularly using AI. So with that in mind, I went back into my kind of old SEO toolkit to remind myself of things that we use to check um, accessibility and to find ways to make very, very small adjustments. And I want to be clear about this, Roger, whatever you're going to have to do to make your website more accessible is simple. It's a small, small adjustment to what's there um, currently. So the first thing that you want to be looking is around legibility of the copy and particularly the contrast between the background color and the colors are part of the design. So I put the hyperlink to this organization called webaim.org, where literally they have a contrast checker. So you can put the values of your colors and, and then it will tell you, I'm sorry, there's not enough contrast or it's absolutely fine. I used that recently because that was a website for one of my customers where they had green as a background, if you like, color, but the text was yellow. I mean, <laughs> even just intuitively, you know it's not going to work, but I was able to use data back to that again to prove the point about shall we maybe rethink you know um, how we display things so the next thing about accessibility is around images and what sometimes is called the alt text or the alternative description but this idea being that you know people who use a reader 
because they can't see the images. And that could be also someone who's just traveling and they are on a low connectivity kind of uh, you know venue. Um, the image um, alt tag can be read out to them or can be read you know, by the individual. And very often this is missed because we're all very, very busy. Uh, to, to begin with, be careful about uploading images on your website. That is um, called picture1.jpg. I think the description is going to be much, much better. And then within the, the kind of the dashboard, uh, often the WordPress and another, you have the option to add in a field the alt tag. Now, I get it. Sometimes you know you lack imagination or you feel being repetitive. So there is a platform called Ahrefs, so A-H-R-E-F-S.com. They've been a, a um, kind of um, a brand that has been supporting SEO activities where they have created an AI-powered alt text generator. And it's quite remarkable. So literally what you would do is you would upload one of your images, the one that you're about to put on the website, and it would come up with a series of options as to what the alternative description will be. I put it the test. I actually uploaded a picture of myself, um, <laughs> one of my PR shots, Roger, and the description was exceptional. I mean, it was describing the background that I was wearing. The only thing you couldn't know that is I was French, but it would like it said everything else in terms of what this picture was covering. And what I liked about it, even if you don't end up using it that often, it reminds you about being descriptive and explicit when you want to add the alt text. So you have it. It's a contrast checker first and an alt text generator next. Yeah, I mean, the alt text thing is very interesting, isn't it? And it's definitely something that I often forget. Um, you know, I'm uploading my own podcast. I'll often forget to put the alt text in the description. And it's so important for SEO, isn't it? But so, no, really interesting stuff there. Now, Actually, my my uh, selections this week are generative as well. Now, interesting that we were saying earlier that as Gen X people, we don't feel that advert, adverts are targeted at us very well. I have to say that I found these things this week by being targeted by an advert. And it, very unusual for me, I did respond to the advert. I got an advert in my Instagram feed from this company called VFly, VFly. And effectively, it's a promotional website for people with YouTube channels, and that's probably why they um, targeted me. So I thought I'd give it a look. Now, I have tried in the past to use Google Ads, because I do have a Google Ad Ads account, to use Google Ads to do a bit of promotion on a YouTube video, just to see whether it would get it more views, maybe get it a few more subscribers, and that sort of thing. And... What you know, once you've put the time into getting Google Ads working, it's it's not too hard. It can be a bit fiddly, but I've I've had a bit of success. I haven't spent millions of pounds on it. You know, I'm talking tens of pounds, not not hundreds and thousands. But obviously, it does work. Now, what it appears that VFly do is they effectively allow you to put the URL in the of the video that you want to promote or the the, the channel that you want to promote. Say how much you want to pay, and effectively, it does the whole thing for you. It creates a Google ad. Um, so you don't have to go through the hassle of trying to work out what the best headline might be or the best the best image, etc. And then it promotes it, and you can you can mess around with the audience 
um, demographics, if you like, and that sort of thing. So I thought I'd give it a try. And I'm actually, actually quite interested. They do give you an offer for signing up. So um, just for a, a, a modest £10, I managed to generate about a 1,000 views on an, an old YouTube video. And presumably those adverts appeared somewhere in somebody's feed and they therefore clicked on, on the ad and it worked. Now, interestingly enough, I compared that to an old Google Ads campaign that I did for a similar amount of money, and it was about the same. So VFly is sort of taking away the hassle or the complexity away from Google Ads. So if somebody genuinely wants to promote a YouTube video, but they haven't got the time to invest in understanding Google Ads like I have, then VFly would be a useful option. What I really like about the VFly website, however, is that they have a load of extra free YouTube tools in there. There's a keyword generator, which is quite useful. There's a title writer and then a title rewriter. Uh, and, the, and it's obviously the, the AI algorithm tries to work out what is most likely to get somebody to click on the title of your video. There's a hashtag generator because you still it's still worth putting hashtags into a description in a YouTube video. It'll even do a description generator. And um, one thing that is really interesting is that it will extract the tags from another video that you might see on YouTube. So if you're, I don't know, if you're doing a video on a similar subject to one that's already been done by somebody who's been very successful with that particular video the tag extractor will take all the tags out of their video and you can put the tags into your video and maybe that will give you a little bit of an advantage now obviously there's a price to be paid for this and i also came across a free title generating um, gizmo on a site called Headline Studio and Headline Studio does a similar sort of thing you put some keywords in tell it who your target audience is tell them what the tone you want it to be and it will come up with titles for your YouTube video which again should be orientated towards getting people to click what's interesting about the Headline Studio one is it will also generate headlines for Instagram TikTok for your blog for an email even, and for a podcast. So may well actually test out the title for this podcast that we're recording today to see whether Headline Studio or VFly come up with a better suggestion for the title. So there you go, YouTube promotions using VFly and Headline Studio. But what is interesting about your selection is exactly that. The thing we've been talking about is, can we find digital assistants that are either going to save us time or stimulate our imagination. Mm. And on both counts, you find some real gems here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Pascal, we've made it through the majority of the show, but we've still got what I think is the best part of the show to come. Let's move on to film marketing. So, Pascal, this week you've chosen the film. We are going to head back in time to 1993. Jurassic Park. Let's have a look at the trailer. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. 
Can't you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. This is a failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! Go! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. Oh, wow. Wow. Lots of, back, lots of memories there. I mean, it was a spectacle, wasn't it? It was a spectacle. I, I grew up loving dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were the, the thing that I was most obsessed with as a child. I don't know about you, but when this film came out, it was another of those, oh, my God, I can be a child whilst being an adult again. I remember I was working part-time at a hotel whilst I was studying when I came out. And we actually asked our boss, mostly uh, all the blokes that I listened to had, we asked for a half day off because literally the hotel was not far from the, the cinema. And all of us as a big group, we went in there because it had been obviously the, the marketing campaign, which we're going to talk about in a moment, that got you so, so excited. But it was so intriguing and enigmatic. And we knew there was a breakthrough in terms of visuals and technology, but we didn't know too much. And... I've read somewhere, actually, during the, during the research, that for some young audiences, because, you know, we've been much older, it was a Star Wars moment, literally. Yeah. You know, and so now I go with my children to see Jurassic Park because this year is a 30th anniversary, which is incredible, 30 years. In some <clears throat> larger cities around the world, they've done the 3D screening as a celebration. But most people like you and I will have the Blu-rays or we can watch it now free on most streaming channels. And it's just an incredible uh, contribution to to the world of cinema. As yeah. Again, and, uh, again. <laughs> it redefined the, the, the blockbuster, doesn't it? I mean, as you said, it's 20 years after Jaws that Steven Spielberg did this. So in 1975, he launched Jaws, which was all about a shark with big teeth. And 20 years later, he reinvented their summer blockbuster with dinosaurs with big teeth. Um, so it's always about teeth with uh, Steven Spielberg and getting eaten by things. Goodness me. Yeah. <laughs> now, the book was written by Michael Crichton, wasn't it, um, mm. Pascal? And I actually read the book. I'm convinced I read the book about a year or so before the film came out. And I remember reading the book, and you know the, the sort of wonky science bit in there about how they found a, um, a piece of amber, and within the piece of amber there was a, a prehistoric insect that had been frozen in the amber, and they go into the insect and find the DNA of a dinosaur that the insect must have bitten a million years ago and then they use the dna of the dinosaur from inside the fly in the amber to create a clone of a dinosaur when i actually read that book i thought that actually sounds quite feasible doesn't it <laughs> well, well certainly dna extraction and then cloning with with, with cells has been done um you know before i don't know whether you could do it with um that fossils and so on but the, the logic and the cause and effect which is also represented in a movie through the animation and so on, which we'll talk about, because what is interesting about uh, Jurassic Park, um, there is a marketing of the film, but of course, because this is about the launch of a park, there are marketing lessons within the movie itself. Yes, so that the, yes. the characters, and of course, Dr. John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, is the entrepreneur who 
uh, is looking to market, you know, the, the park. So that's what we'll do in a moment is, is look at both facets. But for me, I, I mean, I always ask the question when we do film marketing, ask Rich, uh, Roger, do, do you have a favorite moment in Jurassic Park? It's probably hard to pick one, isn't it? The, the one that sticks to my mind is that the, I think they're in a Jeep and they're driving on a there's quite a green hillside and the, the camera pans back and there are a load of brontosauruses or diplodocuses <sighs> with the ones with the really long necks just like all out on this hillside that that's the moment that i it wasn't the tyrannosaurus rex funnily enough that gave me that wow moment it was that when i saw the sort of the landscape with all the dinosaurs like a herd of dinosaurs on the landscape. Yeah, and what was interesting uh, in terms of um, the the actors, because you know they are present in a film of just dinosaur, the, the acting from Sam Neill and Laura Dern about the shock, because ultimately they were looking at nothing. Yes, and yes. there is a scene that I, I believe maybe it's become urban legend where Sam Neill did it on purpose, where he clumsily trying to remove his glasses, but he's not successful because he's so in awe and in shock mm -hmm. of what he can see. Um, I think that I mean certainly the whole T Rex under the rain, the chip turned upside down. The whole the whole sequence um, is great. Uh, the Velociraptors uh, I love, and the um, the guy that plays you know the, the the kind of what would you call him the uh, uh, the, the zookeeper or sort of the park keeper played by Robert Peck when he's trying to hunt the um, Velociraptor. But he's mm. hunted, mm. and he's, he's that with his gun, and he turns around. He realizes he's been trapped, and he says, "Clever girl." I mean, the moments like this are <laughs> just, 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 just very good. So, if we could try and cast our mind back to 1993, which is a very, very hard thing to do. Um, a couple of things that obviously made Jurassic Park a success, although at the time, I'm sure that the filmmakers were certainly, uh, you know, being quite nervous. So, number one was a complete change of direction with regard to how the dinosaurs would come to life on screen. So, they moved away from um, stop animation. Um, which was done by Maestro, you know, Phil Tippett, who worked on all the George Lucas and Spielberg production before, and moving to computer-generated uh, imagery. And that wasn't done before, so there was no precedent, and that could have failed miserably. But also the, the other thing, which was more of a marketing decision, is to show and say little as possible about the, the dinosaurs. And we've seen examples when we did, for example, Waterworld, what where secrecy can backfire. People mm. can get very, very frustrated. But, um, you know, there we are. So let, let's talk briefly before moving to the campaign element about the release of the poster mm. in the summer of 1992, so a year before the movie was going to come out, out of nowhere comes this most famous kind of design of the Jurassic Park logo, which is literally everywhere, including the poster, which is just uh, on the black background with the credits. Yeah, I mean, it's just simplicity in itself isn't it absolute simplicity in itself and, and and ticks all my boxes for simplicity um just basically just a logo isn't it and then a strap line an adventure 65 million years in the making i mean that's a beautiful strap line interestingly enough and i've probably only ever just noticed this now is that the dinosaur in the logo is actually a skeleton as opposed to a real dinosaur yeah, and actually, because I have not read the uh, the book, um, but the skeleton is on the cover of the book. So because Michael Crichton um, was part of the, the the team working on the screenplay, I think it was actually a very good 
mm-hmm. uh, homage and nod to you know the the book itself. But then, and I was sort of rack my brain. You know, I don't think I've seen many movies where there is a logo to begin with, you know, as part of the identity and the brand, but that the logo is also part, is in the movie itself. In and the movie itself, yes. The only one that I came up with this morning, but I must have missed a few, is Ghostbusters. But yeah, yes. all the others, they have a title sequence and they have a brand of sort, but it does not appear as part of the storytelling. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That's a good spot. So, everyone, we did the research, of course, for Jurassic Park, 1993. I mean, the internet was really barely starting. It was on dial-up, let alone (laughs) to now. (laughs) And we've been lucky. We found an article written in March 1993, so that's a few months before the release of the film by author and pop culture journalist Pat H. Brusker. And she wrote an article, and Roger and I are going to go through some of the, the, the kind of key elements but the title of the article is simply Promoting Jurassic Park. And there was a headline, Steven Spielberg launches one of the biggest movie marketing crusades in history. Now, 30 years ago, spending $65 million on marketing seems extravagant. Of course, nowadays, it's like, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was almost matching the budget of the film itself. So looking at the article from Pat, thank you very much. And thank you for the newspaper for re-releasing it online because I'm sure that was printed to tactic number one was the literally the, the intense and really kind of uh, enforced secrecy around keeping particularly the T-Rex and the others. And I think the Vesselaraptors as well. And, and literally people wanted to go and see Jurassic Park to have the same experience of going to see Jaws or E.T. Yeah, I mean, that was so important, isn't it? And you think back to Jaws, how the, the actual shark didn't make the full appearance in the film until very close to the end. And even then, you only saw it fleetingly um, because it wasn't very good, I, I guess. So they kept all of that tension going by just using glimpses and, and music. Mm. What was also interesting is the tactics around promotions. There was about 100 companies involved in this film um, involving a thousand or so different products. And it says in the article here from sleeping bags to fanny packs. And of course, we know that fanny packs are what Americans call bum bags, you know, those things you put around your waist mm. and put, you, put your money in. There was video games, including ones by Sega and Ocean Software. There was a toy line um, distributed by Hasbro and McDonald's dino-sized <laughs> meals. And I guess the whole thing was was a trinity of promotional um, merchandising. That's what it, they called it, the trinity of promotional merchandising, effectively toys, fast food, and video games. And again, you know, if you take it back 30 years later, in a way, nothing has changed much. I mean, people are now using Fortnite as a means to and promote movies. There's toys galore, and and um, you know, fast food chains and others are still involved as a as a way to distribute the um, the, the the messages. But another tactic that was used, and I think that's so so clever because obviously there was a year before the movie could be released. Um, this being obviously financed by Universal Studios amongst others, they had built a Jurassic Park information center. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you literally had staff working in a booth to give information about uh, a future Jurassic Park, which is essentially fictional. It's a movie. But I love this idea, as you've seen before, of extending the universe to real life. Yeah. And, and tactic number four from the article is that they 
built a Jurassic water ride at Universal's uh, um, Orlando Park. And the the article suggests that the ride actually ended up costing more than the movie itself. Just yeah. as an aside, even just last year, there was a ride opened. I can't remember whether it was Universal or not. It's definitely in Orlando. It might be SeaWorld, which was called Velocico Velocicoaster, which was a sort of crushed together of Velociraptor and roller coaster, Velocicoaster. So the legacy still remains from that original idea to create a ride out of this. Absolutely. With the research, we found two more tactics before moving on to the marketing messages within the film itself. So something that we don't mention often is so, so important. In October 1992, so a few months after the release of the post and the brand and so on, Universal Studios actually invited all the licensors and licensees, all the kind of um, you know, channels of communication into this kind of almighty seminar at uh, in Hollywood. And there was two facets to it. The, the first were presenting their plans for the global marketing campaign. I'm sure there was a few NDAs having to be signed for, for that one. But importantly, they invited everyone to suggest their own ideas to make the marketing campaign even better. And in the end, one of the attendees, perhaps someone from Universal, coined, you know, this gathering, the Dinosaur Dream Team. The Dinosaur Dream Team, the DDT. And in February 1993, a small magazine called Jurassic News was published for distribution in cinemas with content written by the characters in the movie. I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that uh, actual little newspaper that you can pick up and take away from the, from the cinema. It's just almost like a, a built-in souvenir, isn't it? I mean, if you have copies of that, it would be worth quite quite a bit of money if it's on an auction. But literally, you know, it was written in the first person. So uh, Dr. John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, was addressing the reader and saying, you know, soon my park will open on, on you know, June the 11th, which is, of course, the day the movie was released. So th th there was a lot of creative thinking and using, you know, uh, channels. And then, of course, which is what I want to get into, if you don't mind, it's about the movie itself. So... You know, you've got a situation where the, this entrepreneur uh, and scientist is opened a park and is moments away from opening the park and is going through, I suppose, a bit of user testing, you could argue, yes. by inviting, you know, a, a few scientists and he's got his grandkids with him as well. So, um, you know, if we take your favorite um, subject and topic of marketing as lesson number one, which is about the audience. Yeah, I mean... Again, we say, who is your who is your target audience? Who is your customer? And that is lesson number one from this film. There is actually a scene in the film where John Hammond is arguing with the lawyer, uh, and that and, and uh, by the way, that lawyer later gets eaten by the T Rex whilst he's sat on the toilet. But they're actually having a conversation about who is this park aimed at? Who is this park aimed at? Who are our customers? So you've got to focus on your audience and be crystal clear about who will be benefiting from your product or your experience. I mean, you know, put it this way, this is a fiction bit of work, you know, it's meant to entertain families, but there was moments where this, this was a business meeting, back and forth between people with diverging views and so on. And I thought that's Fascinating, isn't it? Uh, for me, the, the lesson number two that we, could be derived from the film is about the branding, which exists uh, outside as terms of the promotional vehicle for the movie. But everywhere around the park, that logo is used for different things. 
for signage about where to go and and giving directions to you know different representation, including some kind of stonework and so on, doing the different things. Uh, there was even someone that said, you know, when you freeze frame, you know, the movie, you can see the very toys from from Canada. You can see the very very gifts from McDonald's on the shelves of the the Jurassic Park buildings as well. <laughs> That's very good, isn't it? And I guess lesson number three is you've got to share your origin story. You know, audiences love to know the whys and hows of what mo motivates you to do something in the first place. And whether you're selling cupcakes, or you're selling aeroplanes, you're selling marketing courses, there will be a backstory, you know, about Roger Edwards, about Pascal, about your company. And again, there's a scene in the film where John Hammond is showing a video about how they extracted the dinosaur DNA from the mosquito, which was a mosquito, not a fly, wasn't it, which I said earlier. Therefore, sharing the story about that original um, inspiration. For me, what is interesting is you see the genius of Steven Spielberg and his colleagues about this is a hard one to explain you know, science. Mm -hmm. And you, you could have had, you know, Richard Attenborough standing there saying it, just using words, and they had to actually create a manifest, this idea, what if it's a real tour? Uh, by the way, when I went to visit um, Sony Studios in America, that's where you do, you actually sit and watch a video first before being taken by a guide physically around, you know, around the different premises. So I just thought it was a genius idea to have a 2D animation a bit quirky, a bit silly, and even Richard Attenborough, the character John Hammond, is not quite ready. He's using flashcards and to remind the base script and so on. I just thought that was a very, very good idea. And then you, you're taken to what would be the extension of that lesson, lesson number four is take your audience behind the scenes mm. and don't be afraid to share with them the unique facets of how you do what you do. And this is where after the vi visiting, seeing the video, forgive me, they are visiting the lab and they can see the, the eggs and, and how it's all done and so on. And I think that for us, the audience, to be guided by our protagonist is part of uh, the whole experience of watching Jurassic Park, for sure. Indeed, indeed. And we always say, don't we, that you've got to test things. We, we talked about the Pioneer spacecrafts before, how you iterate, you get better, you refine it. Again, you've got to spend time and invest in user testing, and there's another scene in the film, this really is a playbook for marketing, isn't it, of them testing the trip, testing the Jeeps, going out and about, you know, is the route right? Is the experience right? Are we seeing the right parts of the park? It all works. It all fits together. So, again, you've got to refine, get feedback, refine, get feedback. You know, and that's what's remarkable about Jurassic Park and why 30 years later there's a global celebration and so on. Uh, if if I was to, you know, have a bit of fun with a movie and suggest one final lesson, make sure you have a very reliable IT consultant. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, everything goes wrong because of that gentleman who's trying to steal, you know, um, say DNA or eggs from 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 the uh, from the premises and so on. So what is interesting, now we, we began this journey of rediscovery of the market campaign thanks to an article from Pat H. Brusker. Uh, she closes her article with literally the final sentence in the article is as follows. This movie is all about hype. The big question is, would it live up to the hype? And that was it, you know, March 1993. Well, I mean, 30 years later, you know, I've already said how much we love this movie. Uh, it eventually won 20 awards, including three Academy Awards for technical achievements in visual and sound design. 
And in November 1993, so a few months after the release of the movie, Universal received the Entertainment Marketer of the Year Award. There you go. I mean, it it was phenomenal, and it spawned, I I I don't even know, at least five sequels. Is it five, or is it six? Five, yeah, I would say, yeah. Yeah, Five, so absolutely incredible. Pascal, that was a really, really interesting uh, sort of double whammy. Love talking mm. about the actual marketing of Jurassic Park, but also the lessons from how they marketed the park within the film. It's almost like a marketing lesson within film marketing, within the film itself. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing the research for this week and for Jurassic Park. It's been a really action-packed show today. I've really enjoyed all the content we've talked about. Everyone, thank you so much for watching or listening to Two Geeks in the Marketing Podcast. Please do subscribe or um, give us your comments and suggestions in the usual places. If there's a film you want us to review, let us know. If there's a piece of content you want us to talk about, let us know. Even if there's a news item that you think we've missed, let us know. Until next time, go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Thank you.